You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, y'all, so good to have you with us today. Remember, the place for a man, for a woman, completing all their powers is in the fight, the spiritual fight, and right now, today, making disciples of the nations. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, what's on the docket today? Uh, as we like to do, a couple of issues that we just want to kind of throw out there, maybe a couple of other interesting perspectives, but we finally want to get today to a, a, a topic that I think is hugely important. I teach at Wesley Biblical Seminary, as well you know, and one of the things I love to teach is the use of the Psalms, uh, how important it is for our life. We'll, we'll get to that here in just a moment. But uh, before we get to any of that, let's get right to this. One of the sponsors of our program today is Wesley Biblical Seminary. Folks, I've taught here for 33 years. By the way, just finished up a couple semesters of the best semesters we've ever had, I've ever had, at this school across 33 years. The Lord's blessing us. It's great to be here. One of the best seminaries in the world, there's no question about that, and a place where you can come and check out the various wonderful things that we can offer you. There's a lay program called the Wesley Institute. There's our undergraduate program. Yep, we got a college you need to discover. Our master's programs and even a doctoral program, a D-Min program. Really something for all serious disciples. So check it out. You can go to WBS for Wesley Biblical Seminary, wbs.edu. All right. So Let's get to some issues today. I, um, I, I've noticed in Christianity Today, there's a couple of writers that I really appreciate uh, that are out there right now. One of them is named Lyman Stone and another guy named Brad Wilcox. They do a lot of great social science research. And one of the things they talk about in the latest issue of Christianity Today is religious Americans are less likely to divorce. Uh, I love this, and I want to... Want to encourage you in these thoughts here with this U.S. Census data. They Stone and Wilcox go into the census, and they notice that the average American couple gets married around the age of 30 or so. That's quite a bit later, I think, than most times in American history. But nonetheless, here we go. Uh, most American couples are now marrying around the age of 30. Many young adults believe that forming unions closer to that age reduces their risk of divorce because I guess they figure they're smarter at age 30 than they were at, say, 22 or 19 or 18. And by the way, uh, both Stone and Wilcox say there's you know some research consistent with that belief. But we also have evidence suggesting that religious Americans are less likely to divorce, even as they are more likely to marry younger than 30. So this kind of paradoxical pattern raises two questions worth exploring. Is the way religious Americans form their marriages different than the way their more secular peers do? And do religious unions formed by 20-somethings face different divorce odds than those formed by secular Americans in the same age group? Now, one of the things they say, and I th this may be the key point, he says, today, more than 70% 
Now, this, this boggles my mind and actually makes me cry a little bit. But more than 70% of marriages are preceded by cohabitation. They're living together before they get married. And increased cohabitation is both a cause and a consequence of the rise in the average age of these divorces. Now, most young adults don't know that if you cohabit before, I think a lot of young adults think, hey, this is good practice for marriage. It's not good practice for marriage. Cohabiting before really puts you and your spouse, your future spouse, at major risk with an increased risk of divorce. And uh, there's a recent Stanford study that points this out. Now, here, here we go. Here's the point. One reason that religious marriages in America may be more stable is that they reduce young adults' odds of cohabiting prior to the marriage, even though they increase their likelihood of marrying at a relatively young age. So there's the good news here. If now We're not talking about you're a member of a church. You're not, hey, yeah, when the guy asked me across the telephone line, am I born again? That I would say yes, not that kind of religious stuff, but you actually go to church. You actually attend, you actually give, you actually serve. That's religious. So these religious marriages uh, basically mean that you're less likely to cohabit, and that means that you're going to have a more solid marriage. Now, listen, for years we have taught here that it's a very dangerous thing for a church to turn into be a blessing machine for marriages. But that's what a lot of us have become in our churches. We just want to bless people who want to get married. We don't want to train them for marriage. We don't want to say, hey, these are the challenges of marriage. We don't want to say, hey, these are the likely problems that are going to happen in marriage, and you need to be ready for them, and you need to know what to do when these problems arise. In other words, premarital counseling, not just once, not just for a session, not just for a a couple sessions, but over 10 weeks we'd say, let's read some books together. Let's take some tests. Let's really figure out what this marriage ought to mean and how we can best prepare for it. Now, what we do is say, hey, uh, we can help you. We can help you with the marriage ceremony. We can make it beautiful. We got to be, look, we got stained glass in this church. Instead of saying, let's really prepare for the marriage. And I think one of the key discipleship trends in evangelicalism that needs to happen increasingly is we help people train for marriage. We don't tend to do a very good job of it. We need to do much better. And by the way, along this cohabiting line, what we say in our church is something I I, I just read it from, I think, marriagesavers.org. What they taught us to say at our church, and we've been doing it and happy we've been doing it for quite a long time now, is Yeah, we're willing to marry you, but we want to make sure you're both committed to Jesus Christ. We want to make sure you're both committed to a local church. It doesn't even have to be ours, but that you're going to go to a local church together. So you have a covenant relationship with God. You have a covenant relationship with a church, with a local church. Furthermore, if you're living together, you will stop living together until the day of your wedding. And, uh, and then what we finally want to say is we want you to sign on to about 10 sessions across 10 weeks of premarital training. It's going to have an inventory, going to have a test to it, might have some psychological training to it, might have some, uh, ba- very definitely, this is what the Bible says marriage ought to be. We want to train people for success in marriage. If they're unwilling to do any of those things, we just say, 
there's probably another church that you ought to be thinking about here, because that's our standard here, and we intend to live by the standard. Listen, there's no use in us calling marriage holy matrimony if we're not going to help it be holy, if you know what I mean. So there's item one. Religious Americans are less likely to divorce, and there's good reason for that. They're less likely to cohabit. Now, th- th- this is another interesting news item I saw. Uh, this comes uh, to us uh, through, interesting enough, a United Nations agency. The U.S. is pouring abortion funding money into a U.N. agency for the first time. But, y'all, you need to know this. Your tax dollars have gone for a long time to support abortion internationally. I, I hope you understand that. See, there- there's a lot of people that think we can somehow live as purists in an economic and relatively evil culture. But you just need to know your tax dollars are going to really bad things. And that's why we say, well, do we submit to those kinds of things? Do we submit to our taxation practices anyway? And the answer to that is largely yes, but let's get in the fight to try to battle against these evil tendencies that, for instance, the U.S. State Department apparently has. They're pumping $5 million into what they call the UNFPA Supplies Partnership. That marks the first time this country has provided funding for the United Nations division that says it gives life-saving maternal health supplies around the world. Listen, whenever the United Nations says, hey, all we're doing is giving life-saving maternal health supplies around the world. Right. And life-saving means we get rid of a kid if the kid's getting in your way. Rebecca Oass of um, CFAM says it's a true partnership that uses donor contributions to purchase and distribute contraceptives and maternal health supplies, which is where the problem lies with pro-lifers. If you look at their list of what they distribute under the heading of maternal health supplies, it includes drugs and devices that are used for abortion. But y'all... That shouldn't surprise us. We've been doing things like that for years internationally, promoting abortion internationally. It's what your government does. And so this whole thing of being a purist, you know, a lot of people say, I don't want to take the vaccine right now because, you know, it was developed with a a fetal line, with an abortive fetus somewhere up and down the line. I, I, I don't want, I can't handle that kind of thing in my body. You need to know that it's hard, again, to live a purist life economically because, again, our tax dollars go for some really bad things. Uh, I know you know that, but uh, those who want to make a purist argument, boy, I tell you what, there's a lot to have to explain away. I uh, recognize that at Christmas time, uh, we recognize that, as far as the calendar goes, the Magi, the wise men, show up quite a bit later, several months later. And I've always appreciated this line out of Soren Kierkegaard. He was called the Disturbing Dane. And the Disturbing Dane one day wrote this. He says, although the scribes could explain where the Messiah should be born, they remained quite unperturbed in Jerusalem. That's the first time they ever died. Oh, my goodness. The, The scribes, all they had to do was walk six miles, and they decided not to do it because... Nah, I don't know. And Kierkegaard says, listen, they did not accompany the wise men to seek him. Similarly, we may be 
able to explain every article of our faith, yet remain spiritually motionless. The power that moved heaven and earth leaves us completely unmoved. I just thought to myself, wow, spiritually motionless, completely unmoved. I've got it in my brain, but it hasn't worked its way down to my hands and my feet. And so when Kierkegaard says, what a contrast. The three kings had only a rumor to go by, but it spurred them to set out on a long, hard journey. The scribes, meanwhile, were very much better informed, much better versed. They had sat, they'd studied the scriptures for years, like so many professors, but it didn't make any difference. Who had the more truth? Those who followed a rumor or those who remain sitting, satisfied with all their biblical knowledge? Oh, wow. Uh, and listen, that's not just to say, hey, let's, uh, uh, let's cast aspersions towards the scribes and the Pharisees. Kierkegaard's saying, no, I'm writing this stuff because I'm disturbed about the church in my nation that claims a relationship with Jesus but can't be made to stand up and go do something about it. And at the end of the day, that's what life-changing discipleship is all about. You finally do something about it. Now, one more interesting perspective here before we get to the Psalms. I, I, uh, I love this perspective from a guy named E. Stanley Jones. He was an old Methodist missionary. Uh, and if you ever get a chance to buy a book that's written by E. Stanley Jones, get it. You're going to love it. It probably will change your life. But the, the question was asked, what is the greatest miracle of Christianity? And he said, not, it's not the virgin birth, not the calming of the waters, not the resurrection, not even Pentecost. He says, this is the central miracle. Are you ready for this, y'all? Are you ready? Here we go. Here is the central miracle of Christianity, says Stanley Jones. Christ. The central miracle is not the resurrection or the virgin birth or any of the other miracles. The central miracle is just this person. For he rises in sinless grandeur above life. He is life's sinless exception, therefore a miracle. <laughs> now, there's a problem with all this, of course. I mean, I appreciate Stanley Jones saying that. It's absolutely right. The greatest miracle of Christianity is Jesus. But he said there's a problem with it, and that is being people who are easily distracted like we can be, we can make lesser miracles much more than they are. In fact, said Jones, causing the blind to see and the lame to walk are easy diversions if they're not understood as corollaries of the miracle of his person. Concentrating on lesser miracles apart from Jesus can quickly become confusing. It can become even chaotic. So he remarks, being a miracle, this is Stanley Jones now, being a miracle, it would be a miracle if he did not perform miracles. And it's true. Praise the Lord. And I, I mean, praise the Lord. Miracles abound all over the world today. But those miracles can confuse and even create spiritual chaos if they don't point straight to holiness personified in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If we miss holy character, 
and doing his holy will, we miss everything that he really wanted us to receive. You say, how do you know that? Because in the Sermon on the Mount, it says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one that does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name? And your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. And then, this is some of the most sobering words in all the Sermon on the Mount. Then I will declare to the prophets so-called, to those who casted out demons so-called, to those who did miracles so-called, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow. Incredible stuff. All right, y'all, listen. Now, I, 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 again, I teach at Wesley Biblical Seminary. One of the things I love to do in our discipleship classes here is say, listen, one of the great ways you should be doing your early morning devotions. And one of the things we, we hold people accountable to do is spend one hour a day uh, in prayer and Bible study, evenly divided. And if you can do more, do more. In fact, when I was going to seminary, it was an hour and 40 minutes a day, the group I was with. Uh, we used to do that here. We have uh, gleaned it down to an hour. Probably ought to be an hour and 40 minutes, which, by the way, they said was the tithe of the waking day. Listen, if you want to get serious with the Lord, do that. Tithe your waking day. Assume eight hours of sleep. Tithe the waking day to the Lord for time in Scripture and in prayer. But having said that... Uh, what we really encourage them to do is do that. And by the way, you can great you can score no higher in the class than the score of your prayer life. So if you've got 96% of the days where you got an hour or more of prayer and Bible study in, then guess what? We say you qualify for an A. But if you only get 86%, no matter if you made A's in the rest of the course or not, you're getting 86 for, <laughs> for the class. I mean, that's you can score no higher. And we use that as a principle that basically the same is true of our life. We go no higher than our prayer life. We go no higher than our intimate relationship with the Lord through Scripture. I, I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He had, had a great little book on the Psalms and the, the, being the prayer book of the Bible. He says, wherever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure vanishes from the Christian church. With its recovery will come unsuspected power. Willem Van Gameren says, the book of Psalms can revolutionize our devotional life, our family patterns, and the fellowship and the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. So I tell our students, as long as you're going to spend an hour in scripture and in the, uh, the prayer life that he wants you to have, one great place to land firstest and mostest is the Psalms. Martin Luther said, the Psalms are a little Bible wherein everything contained in the entire Bible is beautifully and briefly comprehended. John Wesley said much the same thing. He says, the Psalms, it's a testament, a summary of both testaments. Let me say it again. The Psalms are a summary of both testaments. Tremper Longman said, you know, the Psalms, they teach us about God and our relationship with him. That is the heart of theology. The Psalter may be thought of as a portrait of, 
gallery of God, presenting us with multiple images of who God is. And so when we pray with the Psalter, we're actually using language that extols the Father, the Son, the Spirit, as it gathers both Old and New Testament themes and presents the Godhead in all its portrait splendor. When, when Wesley suggests a summary of both Testaments, he's recognizing that the Psalter looks back as well as forward, and that the worshiper thus gets to revel in a uniquely holistic emphasis of scriptural revela- revelation. So I, I just, I love. So one of the things I do is I spend time every morning in the Psalms, and I use a proverb too to pray for one of my children and actually multiples of my children. So, uh, and I, I do it by the date. I'll get to that here in just a moment. How to use the Psalter. But uh, again, let's get back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, the Psalter, it's the prayer book of Jesus in the truest sense of the word. He prayed the Psalter, and now it has become his prayer for all time. We understand how the Psalter can be prayer to God, and yet God's own word, precisely because here we're encountering the praying Christ. N.T. Wright has a book called The Case for the Psalms. He says, Jesus and his contemporaries would have known the Psalms inside out. Paul would have prayed them and sung them from his earliest years. What Jesus believed and understood about his own identity and vocation, and what Paul came to believe and understand about Jesus' unique achievement, they believed and understood within a psalm-shaped world. That same shaping, remarkably, is open to us today. So what we're challenging you to do here on the Life Changing Discipleship Podcast is say, hey, get a psalm-shaped world. If the psalms are the prayer book of Jesus, well, that ought to mean that every believer wants it to be their prayer book as well. In other words, this is the volume of Scripture that daily formed the prayer life, the burgeoning character, the vision of the past, present, future of our Savior. It should be the same for us. You say, wait a minute. You're saying Jesus in the Psalms? Well, where do you see that? Well, first, the Psalms seem to have been significantly memorized and utilized by Jesus in a, a wide variety of circumstances. You can see it from the Gospels. So the Gospels don't tell us everything, but they do tell us that he recited Psalm 118 to identify himself as the stone that the builders rejected, which became the chief cornerstone. He quoted Psalm 110 to confound the Pharisees, showing that he was both God, uh, David's son and David's Lord. On the cross, he cited Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his last words were from Psalm 31.5, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after his resurrection, he taught the disciples from the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms to tell of himself. So Martin Luther says this is a little Bible, all the better that we use that little Bible for our own prayer lives. Let me tell you something about Psalm 31.5. It's the last thing I want as a prayer before I drift off into sleep. There's about four things, five things I do before I go to sleep. And they're, they're usually long prayers and also things that Jesus has helped me form for prayers for myself and for other people. But the last thing that I pray is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And if I have some other things, I'll say, into your hands I commit my wife and that issue we're facing. Into your hands I commit that situation that my son is in right now, or that my daughter. Into your hands I commit 
but I go off, drifting off into dreams, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and the things of my life. And so, having said all that, how do you spend time in the Psalms? So this is what I do. Uh, let's just say today is uh, this, uh, let's just go with something easy. Let's say today is uh, the first. And I, so I'll say, all right, today's the first. Let me go to Psalm 1. And then what I'll do is I'll pray through Psalm 1. Then I will go to plus 30. So I'll do Psalm 1, Psalm 31. I'll pray through Psalm 31. And I'll go to Psalm 61, Psalm 91, and then I'll go to Psalm 121. Now, I also deal with Psalm 119 uh, because it's so long. I mean, Psalm 119, my goodness, it lasts a while. 176 verses in Psalm 119. So what I will do there is I will, I number all the paragraphs. In your Bible, there'll be paragraphs. And I number all the paragraphs, and it goes along the Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So I will number all the paragraphs. And so for the first day, I will do Psalm 1, uh, or excuse me, Psalm 119, first paragraph, Aleph. Blessed are those whose ways blame us, and I'll, I'll pray through it. So I do five Psalms. I'll go to the proverb for the day, Proverbs 1, and I pray over one of my children using that proverb. And eventually we'll include the grandkids and eventually we'll have a big enough family. I'll just have to use more than one proverb. But that doesn't really get down to say, yeah, but exactly how do you use the psalm in prayer life? And so let me tell you, this is a little secret. I don't know anybody else that does this. This has blessed me lately. I've used this this year and I just think it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I usually put these words in God's mouth for me today. Sometimes it gets a little interesting, but usually it's very relevant. And so I pray through the, so if I'm praying five Psalms a day, that means I get through all the Psalms in one month. That means I'll go through these Psalms 12 times this year. And so let me tell you how I do. Let's go to an easy one. Most of you who are listening know Psalm 23. And this is how we do Psalm 23. The Lord. So that's God. So I'll just say, Matt. I am your Lord, and I am your shepherd. Today, Matt, you're not going to be in need. Matt, today I'm going to make you lie down in green pastures. I'm going to lead you beside quiet waters. You see what I'm doing? Every time it says, he lets me lie down in green pastures, I put these words in God's mouth for me today. He lets me lie down in green. Matt, I'm going to let you lie down in green pastures today. I'm going to lead you beside quiet waters this very day, Matt. I'm going to restore your soul. I'm going to guide you in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. Now, listen, Matt, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death today, fear no evil. I'm with you. My rod and my staff, they're going to comfort you. I've prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies. I have anointed your head with oil, man. Your cup is overflowing today. Recognize it. Live in an overflowing cup. Certainly, goodness and faithfulness is going to follow you all the days of your life, man. And 
your dwelling will be in my house, the Lord God, your covenant God, forever. So that's how I read. And so if someone asked me, how's my day going? I said, man, I heard from the Lord today. And boy, did he ever bless me. And if someone wanted to say, what in the world did he tell you? I can open up Psalm 23 and say, this is what he told me. Matt, I'm your shepherd. God directly spoke to me today from his word to me, especially that I would not be in need today. And I can march through that. And so what I would do at that point is add 30. And I just did it with Psalm 23. Then I'd do it with Psalm 53. Then I'd do it with Psalm 83. Keep adding 30. Y'all, you want to be blessed. You want to hear from God. You want to know that you know that you know that you heard from God. Not a bad way to go about using the Psalter. Not the only way. But I would, I would say get in to the Psalms and get a Psalm-shaped world. Because this is what we believe. Jesus had a Psalm-shaped world, and he wanted you to have one as well. I'll just say, if it's good enough for Christ, it's good enough for you and for me. All right, it's a wrap. Been an honor to have you listen to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast with Matt Friedemann. Hey, we want you to check out our Facebook page, Life-Changing Discipleship, and check out our books at Amazon.com. Type in Matt Friedemann into that search engine and see what's offered. And by the way, another great website is Teleos Press. Go there. And always, always tell other people about this podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you. My daughter thanks you. My sons and their wives thank you. And I can assure you that I thank you for listening to the life-changing discipleship program today. Love God. Live clean. Keep the faith. Make disciples. And God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon. <laughs>